TGIM Team RE. This is episode 328. The quality of my relationships with other people in the world is limited by the quality of my relationship with myself. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's show, we've got Adam. Adam took his last drink on December 13th, 2019. He is from Massachusetts and he is 37 years old. Before I get started, I wanted to let you all know that season two of the Recovery Elevator Podcast is winding down. Season three is going to be starting on Monday, June 21st. So coming up less than a month, we don't want to give away what we're doing and what we have in store for season three. Just know that we are continuously working towards having fun, staying authentic and helping others along the way. Thank you once again to everyone that supported us and me during season two. This has been an amazing experience and I feel extremely grateful I get to do this. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. For today, I am bringing back story time into our intro. I was recently talking to a friend about how in early sobriety, a lot of her thoughts shift from where am I going to get my next drink to how am I going to make it through today without drinking? Honestly, it's a bit exhausting. Maybe that's why I wanted to take so many naps during my first 30 days alcohol-free. I remember being so tired. I think that not only our body is resetting, but our thoughts are playing tug-of-war. We've decided we will not drink. But a part of our brain is still trying to convince us to go back to our drinking comfort zone. You know, just another attempt at moderation. While the other part of our brain is figuring out how to navigate the next 24 hours dodging temptations and cravings. Permission to be tired in early sobriety, team. Many people have shared that they expect high energy in early sobriety. After all, we're no longer pouring gasolina all over our body. All over our body? Into our body? (laughs) Yet somehow we are still tired. I wanted to just say it's okay to be tired. The mental work you are doing beats any CrossFit workout. I'm going to have to fact check myself on that. But what I'm saying here is that we do not give our mind enough credit. We are trying to rewire our brain, and that is hard work. So take as many naps as you need in early sobriety, friends. Anyway, once you unlock a level of sobriety where you're no longer obsessing over how not to drink in a day, there is new mental headspace. Headspace that is very valuable, and sadly, a lot of the times, we fill it up with doubt and fear. How will my friends respond when I tell them I'm not drinking? What will I do on my wedding day when I can't cheers with champagne? Will I be the weird sober one in my group now? These fearful thoughts start filling up our brain. So I bumped into this passage, letting go of fear, and it is by my bestie that doesn't know she is my bestie yet, Melody Beattie. So let me share. Here we go. Letting go of fear. Fear is at the core of codependency. It can motivate us to control situations or neglect ourselves. Many of us have been afraid for so long that we don't label our feelings fear. We are used to feeling upset and anxious. It feels normal. Peace and serenity may be uncomfortable. At one time, fear may have been appropriate and even useful. We may have relied on fear to protect ourselves, much the way soldiers in a war rely on fear to help them survive. But now, in recovery, we're living differently. It's time to thank our old fears for helping us survive, then wave goodbye to them. Welcome peace, trust, acceptance, and safety. We don't need that much fear anymore. We can listen to our healthy fears and let go of the rest. We can create a feeling of safety for ourselves now. We are safe now. We've made a commitment to take care of ourselves. We can trust and love ourselves. Help me let go of my need to be afraid. Replace it with the need to be at peace. Help me listen to my healthy fears and relinquish the rest. 
So that's the mantra for the reading. Replace my need of being afraid with a need to be at peace. That's from the Language of Letting Go, Melody Beattie, page 127. I wanted to share this one because it strikes a chord for me. Being in chaos was my comfort zone versus being at peace. So that transition has taken some time. Sometimes what's best for us feels wrong. It feels wrong because we're not used to this new way of thinking and being. We are used to numbing the pain and the struggle. We're all walking around with our baggage backpack and we live in a society that many times says that everything good comes through pain and suffering. That we have to hustle to prove our worth and struggle in order to achieve, in order to become. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm sick and tired of this becoming process. I just want to be. I just want to make my baggage backpack a little bit lighter, stop and smell the roses, eat my spicy chili mango, and take deep breaths throughout the day. We aren't exempt of pain. We aren't exempt of challenges. Those will keep coming. We are, however, in charge of changing our normal, of being brave and honest and letting go of behaviors that, although feel comfortable, aren't serving us anymore. Peace begins with me. All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Adam, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe Ari almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me straight away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in the community. People all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my own journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe Ari, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe Ari, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and to sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you there. Hey Adam, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm feeling really good. I just did a 10-minute meditation to get ready for this. So here we go. How are you today? Really good. Thank you so much for asking. And let's get right to it, Adam. When was the last time you had a drink? December 13th, 2019. December 13th, 2019. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling really good. And and so far, I mean, it, it took me a long time to get there uh, and to get to where I am now. So it's it's a beautiful thing every day. Yeah, I can't wait to get more into your story. But before we do that, Adam, let us know a little bit more about yourself. Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? And what do you do for fun? Sure. So I live in Western Massachusetts, and I live with my wife and two young children, a seven-month-old and an almost five-year-old. And I am a lawyer. I work for myself, uh, solo practice. And what do I do for fun? I, you know, I play with my girls and I read and I really enjoy running and hiking. I love it. I love it. And I, I, every time I have a guest who has kids that are young, like my kids as well, I am like, yes, they get it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The the seven month old is not one of the magical ones that sleeps through the night. So (sighs) it's, uh, you know, every day is a haul. <laughs> well, I'm certainly grateful that you're waking up hangover free to deal with all of that because it's already exhausting as it is. Yes. 
<laughs> All right, Adam, and can you give us now some background on your history with drinking? When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your life? And what got you to quit? Just tell us your story. Sure. So, you know, originally I'd say that my first uh, love was marijuana and I, I was a casual user through high school and then went to college and uh, November of my freshman year, my mother passed away unexpectedly. It really hit hard and I became a daily pot smoker for the next several years. And, you know, I would, I would use alone. And certainly I was, I was clearly uh, exhibiting signs of, of what would be the alcoholism later on. And, you know, I, I stopped smoking when I went to law school. There was a realization that it wasn't legal. And I was, you know, spending all this money on myself and doing all this work. And if I got caught or into some kind of trouble, then I would not actually be able to get a law license potentially. And so I stopped smoking and then slowly over a period of years, alcohol crept in. And there's certainly an alcohol culture in law schools all over and in uh, that, you know, that career. And it, it ends up being high pressure mm. and, you know, slowly it, it crept in. Now, eventually after a few years and I had uh, I worked for a firm and, and where things were not all that stable and I had a lot of responsibility and not a ton of mentorship. And I really took it on, you know, I was uncomfortable with being vulnerable and talking to people and I kind of took all that pressure on and I just muted those feelings with alcohol. And I'd say that in about 2014, I knew I had a problem. By that time I had already tried doing the things where I was like, all right, well, I'm only going to drink this many times this month and have a calendar. And then by, you know, a week into the month, it was like, I've used up all my days. Let's <laughs> throw that out. And then I moved up to Massachusetts. Uh, I had lived elsewhere previously and was kind of like, all right, when I move, that'll be the end of it. But of course it wasn't. And I was working from home and more in isolation, which really allowed things to take off more. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to pause you for a little bit, Adam, because I'm curious, when you were working for this law firm and you were sharing that you were experiencing a lot of pressure and you didn't have a lot of mentorship you seem, when you explain it, very aware of the fact that you were using alcohol. It had a purpose and it was it was working, you know, it was helping you cope with feelings. At the time, though, because it was so accepted in the culture, were you just drinking because everyone was drinking or were you being aware when you were like, I'm clearly numbing because this is too much for me? What was your mindset you know around alcohol then? Yeah, for me, it was, I think, always numbing because I was really, uh, I, I would drink around other people, but I was also like very much so a secretive drinker and would drink alone. And uh, and so I, I would say that there's a lot of kind of shame in that. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not from a family of alcoholics or, or, you know, substance abuse disorders, but I am from a family where like there was some trouble with vulnerability, a lot of trouble with shame and some food issues. And like, sneak, you know, I saw a parent sneak food all the time and like kind of have shame about it and totally took that on, you know, with with alcohol as well. Wow. Thanks for sharing that part of of your family, because it is it is behavioral. And I we just mentioned already kids and also having kids. And I and I keep thinking, you know, whatever the kids are seeing becomes basically the only thing they know and their experience is so such a tunnel vision of these four walls that are home. So it, it, it does affect, you know, those behaviors do affect who we become as kids when we're the kids and then who our kids become. So yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that isolation came easy to you if it's something that you saw growing up. So I, I understand that. And did you have any food issues as well, if that's okay to ask? Or was, did you just do like yeah. marijuana and then alcohol? No, you can ask. Um, yeah, you know, I, I did. I mean, I was an overweight kid. I, around junior year of high school, I lost about 70 pounds and just kind of developed healthier eating habits and started exercising. And, you know, like I said, I love running. Uh, I've done several half marathons. I uh, haven't gone for the big one yet. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a major part for me these days. It's weird. Like things have really changed. I, I now find myself turning to meditation more than exercise. Like if I only have time for one or the other, then generally I'm choosing meditation right now, uh, this past year. That's amazing. That's a huge transition and huge progress. So 
kudos and thanks for like sharing that because it is hard and there I think there is even a little bit more shame around food for some reason because alcohol is still the the legal thing you know the normalized thing and there's still not a lot of stigma around it. People don't have to hide to get drunk. You know, people have to hide to do drugs or hide to do a binge or binge and purge. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of vulnerability and not feeling like you could show yourself the way that you were. How did that evolve after when you moved and you thought that geographical cure could potentially help? Did you just end up falling back into the same habits where moderation was too difficult? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, by, by 2014, I had gone to my first AA meeting and, uh, and I'd started going to, you know, like a therapist, uh, talking about the alcohol and really I just wasn't ready. And I went on and off to meetings for several years and I developed a pattern of kind of lying about it. It was like, I'd, I'd go for a long period saying, no, it's not a big deal. And then I'd be caught because in, in my hiding use, I often bought, I bought nips because they were easy to hide mm -hmm. and I could also, I was into control so I could control how much I was drinking and knew if I bought X many, then I wouldn't be necessarily like in this place of slurring where I'd get caught or whatever the case may be. And so I was so into trying to control that and reach this like perfect state of numbness, but not heavy consequences. And I got to that place where, you know, I describe it like I there was a point where I would pull out of my office complex once I, I took an office and it's like, if I turned left, I'd go home or to pick up my daughter uh, when she was born. And if I turned right, I went to the nearest liquor store. And there were these times where I'd be in the car and it's like, all right, you're going left, you're going left, you're going left. And then all of a sudden something took over and it's as if the steering wheel stole it's, you know, pushed itself. And I was having an outer body experience until I found myself buying nips, drinking them. And then, you know, I'm not proud of it, but then operating the car to get home uh, or to pick up my daughter for that matter, because I wanted to throw out any of the evidence and not bring it home. Yeah, I hear you. And I hear you on the cognitive dissonance and, and consciously wanting to make the other turn and make the other decision. But it's the subconscious that sneaks in, especially when there's not enough repetitions of you doing the opposite thing. It is so hard. And I love that you mentioned out of body because I feel like I I can remember plenty of those moments where I was like, wait, how did I end up here? I had said I wouldn't. And it's just such a cycle. Was your shame progressing at this time? Were you feeling really bad at these attempts where you just felt like you kept going to the liquor store when you said you wouldn't? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, it was it was really unbearable. And, you know, I really felt like I was just a total failure. And I felt unworthy of, you know, like I, I, if, if someone complimented me, I mean, if, if I were talking to my wife and she was like, you're such a good dad, I just felt such sadness and shame inside because of what I was hiding and that I knew I was actually taking risks and, and putting my daughter in danger. I'd pick her up from daycare after, you know, downing a few nips and, and like just knowing that and having that secret, I felt the weight of the shame was really huge and took a lot to get through. What happened? Did it become unmanageable? Like, did your life become unmanageable or did your thoughts become unmanageable to where you were like, this isn't working anymore? So a bit of everything, you know, things really came to a head. I'd say um, we were, my wife got pregnant with our second child and it started to hit me. You know, I, I had lied before this, let me back up. I had lied about sobriety time and I had an experience where I, uh, took coins. I probably only had about 45 days of, of sober time. And I took coins for an entire year at my home group, uh, in AA and like, you know, celebrated having a year of sobriety when I absolutely did not. And I worked with a sponsor and just lied the entire time. And I finally came clean and, and brought the coins into the AA group and said, I'm sorry, I've been lying to you and I don't have this sober time. And it was a transformative experience because I was met with a room of people who I know vaguely, but in a vulnerable state. And they basically all gave me hugs and just said, it's okay. 
you know, like the level of understanding of pain and the sense of I've been there before, if not in the exact instance, like I've done similar things. And it began opening the door for me to believe that I could feel guilt as opposed to shame, right? Mm -hmm. I did something bad, not I am bad. And that was really big. So then my wife is pregnant and I was still drinking and hiding still. And it started catching up to me. And it was like, I cannot imagine going through the process of having a newborn again. And now I'm in my mid thirties. I'm a little bit older and, uh, and I just could not imagine having two children with the newborn lack of sleep and going through that cycle again and knew something had to change. And the difference was I finally said, and by now I had tried an outpatient group therapy setting. I'd done multiple therapists and I had done the years of AA. And I finally said, you know, I think that I need a bigger level of help. And I talked to my wife about going away for 30 days. And that moment of full surrender, figuring out logistically how to put my business on hold because I'm, I work for myself by myself, how to make sure that childcare stuff was in order. And then to go get well was a huge leap of faith that I could not have done at any point prior to that. Wow. Adam, I want to comment on a couple of things and I want to say thank you for sharing the story about giving the coins back because I genuinely believe that many, many, many of our stories have chapters like the one you shared where you were hiding and being dishonest, but we're still very much afraid to talk about it. And I, I know I made an introduction for a show a few weeks ago. And when I said, like, even in recovery, we judge, we judge ourselves, we judge other people. And I'm just so grateful that you were met with love because... I still don't know a single person that has a straight shot, you know, that decided not to drink, then got everything perfect. And now their life is perfect. Like, I hope I get to hear that story one day. But our stories are so full of these challenges and of us, you know, having to confront ourselves. And it's not fun. And it's not easy. But I bet you felt so much lighter. And I was really glad to hear that you got support because, you know, they've all been there as they shared. And I don't know, for me, it's moments like that where I realize, wait, I don't, the control thing you mentioned, I don't have to have it all under control. I don't have to do this perfect. It almost, I was, when I had my relapses, I was like, ah, oh, like, I don't know. I Did you feel like, even though you were drinking afterwards, you felt less pressured and ashamed after that experience? Yeah. I mean, it opened the door to the idea that, that I could be imperfect and that's okay. Yeah. I, you know, it was like, I'd say about two months probably before I went, uh, I took my last drink. So like October, 2019, I read the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown. Such a good book. And yeah. And I hear people talk about it here all the time. And like, the, the core concept that I took away from that was one, like we're all imperfect, but two, the quality of my relationships with other people in the world is limited by the quality of my relationship with myself. So I could want to have the closest, best relationship with my wife, who is my favorite person in the world. But if I don't believe that I'm worthy of love and I can't love myself, then that relationship is going to suffer. And there's nothing I could do about it until that part with me changes. And, you know, the realization, like that's when it, it was like, I need to go away for 30 days to have the space and room to actually be able to accomplish this. And logistically, I hear you. Logistically, that had to be a nightmare, especially with kids, especially with work. I... Don't know if you had thoughts of last minute, like maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm so glad that you that you did because you have to give yourself permission to be absent from a life where you think so much revolves around you to realize that A, control and the world still spins perfectly fine when we're not around, which my therapist is always trying to tell me because I'm a c control freak. Like when you're gone, mm -hmm. things will be taken care of. And B, 
if you take care of yourself, then all of that stuff that you left behind will be managed and thrive, kind of like what you just said, in a whole different level. How was it coming back home and realizing in this new different mindset that things were different now? So first, I just want to say, like, you you just nailed it. And I'm so happy that you said that, because that I find now so much freedom in the idea that, like, I don't need to take care of certain things. I yes. don't need to take that pressure on. And that is so liberating. And it's crazy how much I lived in, like, a self-imposed cage before, you know? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, once I got home, look, I mean, while I was away, I did a lot of work. Uh, there's no question about it. And I was ready. And when I got home, it was... It was tough because there was a lot of trust to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And and that's the reality. And and the thing about it is I had just spent 30 days working, you know, 15 hours a day on changing my mindset, on learning new skills through meditation and mindfulness and you know, uh, just just reading all these quitlet books and and self-help stuff and gaining all these these things and i come home and the world has been spinning on its normal course on the outside and so you know one of the practitioners at the rehab i went to talked about how like sometimes when you go away to something like this it's as if you're on the highway going 60 miles per hour and you're speeding along and then your family is pulling onto the same highway from a standstill at a rest area and they're going to get up to 60 but it takes time. And so you're speeding past them until you can all catch up with each other. And that definitely happened. I mean, there were some times at the beginning where it turns out I had a lot of resistance and I wasn't as willing to do anything as I thought I was. That's just such a big value bomb. I feel and I've noticed from being so my dad's in, in AA and AA has been a part of my family's life for a long time. And then I have worked into different modalities of recovery, but I do see this common denominator of sometimes getting a lot of resentment towards people that you live with because they don't get it, right? So we find all of our community and our therapists and our support groups that do get it. But then when we come home, it can become a very lonely experience because it's harder to communicate with a lot of the times the people that we love the most and it becomes this battle. But I think that therapist that talked to you really did a great job at communicating what was happening with that metaphor, because it's obviously not anybody's intention. It's just a learning curve. And it's it's hard to find a new sink because I'm sure your wife had your wife also didn't spend 15 hours a day working through her side of the story. And then she's trying to be supportive. It just becomes super messy. So having so much grace, I think, is important. But a lot of the times we need support. So it's complicated. It's messy. But I'm really glad that you got that piece of advice, because a lot of the times we get resentful at relationships that we had. And I do notice that across the board, but it's just that we're on a different lane, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was saying like that the one thing, you know, like my, my wife, when I got home, she asked me to put a an interlock device in the car, a breathalyzer. And I was really resistant to it. You know, the, the reason behind it for her was because in the past I had driven not only myself, but our child and, and her, you know, intoxicated. And she needed to know like the line in the sand, she loves me, would be with me, would be supportive, but the line in the sand is, is harming our child. And, you know, I, I can't today, I can't look at that with any bit of judgment other than that is totally the right move mm -hmm. at the time. I was filled with ego thinking, well, but when I, you know, when I'm driving around town or I'm, I'm picking her up, someone's going to see me blowing into this device and then I'll be judged or this or that. And I came up with all these excuses. And so, you know, I followed people tell you in AA or in, in different programs, like call for help, get advice from people. Don't just rely on yourself. And I, I, you know, this is how sick I was, is that I was still calling people and I got the advice of half a dozen people, but really I was selling them my excuses and trying to get them to validate why I shouldn't have to have it instead of 
actually asking for objective advice. And finally, I agreed to do it. And you know what? I've been safe for more than a year. My family has been safe for more than a year. And nothing bad has happened except for a few minor inconveniences where uh, I have to get it recalibrated every once in a while, or it's a little annoying when I get an oil change. But beyond that, you know, it was a miracle and it's built so much trust back Mm -hmm. and allowed me to gain um, freedom back with my family. Yeah, that is that is so good to hear because that trust, you know, a lot of people ask about relationships and drinking patterns and that trust does need to be need to be built. So, you know, I'm I'm glad you said yes. It's separating the ego from what's best for all is is not always the easiest thing to do, but I'm definitely glad that you you know, it sounds like you've built a lot of awareness behind the reason why you were doing things. You know, I was making those calls, looking for that validation. And in hindsight, everything becomes a little more clear. But how were those first initial months uh, going back home, just specifically directly with your relationship with alcohol? Were you experiencing a lot of cravings? What types of tools were working for you? Yeah, I mean, fortunately for me, you know, the path was was a long one. And I say fortunately, because when I was done, I really have felt done. Uh, Coming back home was relatively easy as far as cravings or anything like that are concerned. You know, I've I've maintained uh, an active life in AA and I go to virtually, you know, uh, typically four meetings a week. And one thing that I did was there are three people. uh, Well, I, I changed sponsors when I got back and he brought me into a gratitude group. So. Uh, with three other people who have years on me in terms of sobriety and wisdom. Uh, every single day, we have to share three things that we're grateful for. And I start my day with that every day. And it has, it had a, a profound effect on me. And, and I've continued that and, you know, and I've, and I've created new groups like that. So like, I do those things to maintain it. And thankfully, cravings have not been a major issue. That's amazing. And I do love the gratitude piece. I feel like it is still a practice that is not only hard, but sometimes it's a little bit frowned upon, like, oh, gratitude or, you know, like, oh, three things I'm grateful for, but it's so important when you start consistently doing it. It does have this weird positive collateral collateral effect or butterfly effect on on things all around you. And, and I like that practice a lot. So I'm glad you're still doing that. Do you still go to AA? I know you previously mentioned it, but was it still a part of your journey afterwards, after treatment? Yeah, I go to three or four meetings a week and I do it all virtually now, you know, this past year uh, since lockdown. But yeah, I keep that up. Absolutely. Tell me more about uh, physical exercise. I know you said you were a runner when we did the introduction. Was that something that you were still doing as you were actively drinking and picked it up again? Or how's your relationship with movement and your body? Because I know that for me, it's one of my favorite tools. Do you feel like it helps? It totally helps. I mean, yes, I, I, you know, I ran throughout drinking rather and, and certainly went through the periods of like offsetting, you know, doing the calorie calculations and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I continue to work out now. Uh, we got, you know, a stationary bike and the Peloton app. And I, I do that a few times a week. And uh, now that it's getting to be nice out again, I'll, I'll be running outside again. And it's definitely a big part staying active. There's no question about it. And tell me about your meditation practice, Adam, because I know we talked about it right at the beginning. And then you mentioned that sometimes that's your main thing that you're doing, even substituting exercise on some days. So how did you learn this? Did you get introduced to it when you were at treatment? How did you make it a habit? Because it's a tricky one for a lot of us. Yeah. So I had been interested in meditation for a while and dabbled with it, but in treatment, I, you know, it was a big part of the program, uh, at least being accessible to it. And I started doing more and more meditation. I had a couple of really profound experiences with it. Number one, you know, I talked about all the shame that I had, and one of the clinicians suggested a mantra to me, which was, I am worthy of receiving all the love the universe has for me. And I had this experience where I was repeating that for, you know, a half an hour meditation and basically found myself in tears, just crying. I, I was 
completely 100% focused just on breath work and repeating the mantra. And suddenly something clicked. And then I had another experience with another clinician that was doing a one-on-one meditation with me where we talked about some childhood things and, and she basically put me in contact through breathing. Like I did not believe in any of this Odette, you know, and, and thought it was very new agey and was a little repelled by it. But like where I contacted, you know, five or seven year old Adam in me and, and was able to talk to him and tell him like, Hey, these defense mechanisms that you put up were the right thing at the time and they served you for a long time, but now you're okay. Like I I am okay and I will protect you and it's okay. And I, I actually felt like I was communicating with a physical thing inside of me and could feel it and move it around my body. And, you know, those kinds of experiences really moved me to embrace meditation. And, uh, so I, I, it's a daily practice for me. I've made the commitment for 2021 to do it every single day for at least 10 minutes. And sometimes I go, you know, 40 minutes or so. I I haven't gone longer than that, but it is something that I do regularly. And sometimes it's just simple breath work. Other times it's a guided meditation, but I really love how I can change the way my entire body physically feels just by breathing. I can make my heartbeat race or slow it down. It's insane because half of the time we forget that we're breathing and it's such a useful tool that we all have available at any moment of any day. And uh, have you heard of Young Pueblo, by the way? No. Oh my God. He's this author that I found through Instagram and he is a meditator. You know, he, he doesn't go a day without doing it. And I, I was just thinking about he came to my mind as you were sharing your practice. So I may have to email you on the side and send you his great his info because I really like what he has to say about meditation. And you even did some inner child work. No, I mean, I, I don't like giving unsolicited advice about sobriety. And I really do feel like whatever feels right to you is what you need to do. And that may change. But I, I, I sense and I hear this openness. And it's advice that I do leak like giving openness in you just to try new things, whether or not you think, oh, this is going to work or not, you know, just being curious enough to try, I think has so much value. And it sounds like you have been doing that. So I want to encourage you to keep that curiosity open because I, it's worth it. Don't you think? Oh, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. Yeah. It, it took me a long time to realize that I'm worth investing in. And that means I'm worth, like, it's worth it to try new things. Uh, even if I, you know, I, I have to be willing. And that's a really big theme in recovery I found is just willingness. Mm-hmm. Just willingness to, to do things differently, to try things differently. And now it's been over a year and you've gained some trust back at home. How is how is home? How are relationships? How is this second baby who's now seven months old? How can you express the difference and explain is it's crazy how it's more than about not drinking huh yeah i wish you could see the smile on my face right now Hmm. um because it's you know that there's this i i know like uh, you know i i spend so much time in the 12-step world so like there's you know this this passage uh about the promises and that there there there's these things that'll happen for you if you follow the aa program which works for some not for all and Bottom line for me, what I could say is, if you asked me 18 months ago what my life could look like if I stopped drinking, I could not design something as good as it feels now. And that means I'm living a life beyond my wildest expectations or dreams, and that is remarkable. I mean, I I look at my little girl, like I wake up, she's not sleeping through the night, and I wake up after a disjointed night of sleep. And it's 5.30 a.m. And then, you know, the five-year-old wakes up also super early. And I got to be on because she wakes up with a ton of energy. And, I, and like, I'm able to say, how lucky am I to experience this? And that's a really different mindset. I would have felt like, oh, my God, why am I awake right now? I would have felt like the world was happening, you know, to me as opposed to just happening or happening for me. And I guess... I'm really grateful. I know that this has been a really hard year through the COVID lockdowns for people. And for me, it has turned into an absolute gift because the truth is, had my wife and I not had to work together 
to make the logistics of our respective careers work while bringing a new child into the world and homeschooling another one through preschool, I don't think that our relationship would have accelerated in its you know, growth as much had it not been for that lockdown. So it was a blessing in disguise for me. Yeah. And we can't play this blame game of blaming the circumstances and blaming other people. If you can leverage it to your advantage, the results are crazy because, I mean, these circumstances that we're in have been obviously the birthplace of a lot of pain, but also the birthplace of so many good things, you know, and it, and it is a, a choice, but I think we're capable, you know, we're capable of making that choice and we're capable of leveraging that to to something good. So I'm really glad to hear that you guys, I mean, for me, COVID, we had to become a team in so many ways that we didn't have to become a team before here at home. And I'm really just glad to hear that. And I do have a hard question and it I'll tell you my answer. For me, the answer is yes. And I and I, I have my tools to not let it make me drink. But is parenting ever triggering to you? Because I feel utterly grat grateful like you. There's no way I could deal with everything that is happening with them and no way I could trade it for anything else. But sometimes it is so triggering for me. And I'm just like, this is so weird that I want a drink, but I know that a drink would just take all of this away in a second. But it's triggering sometimes. There's no question. I'm with you. You know, for me, it's not today. I don't feel like I want to drink. I feel like I want to escape. Yes, relief. And so there's, a, there's, a, yeah, like I, right. And so, you know, that's where like I'll turn to meditation kind of or, or exercise. But like I need, I need a break. And I, Hey, you know, with like with kids, man, you, you do not get it. It is a 24 hour job, uh, no matter what it comes first ahead of everything else if you're doing it right. But yes, the parent club, I mean, if you don't want to break, then I don't think you're being honest. <laughs> I mean, it, it's totally true. But it, I, for me, it, it does help just that simple reminder, you know, I, I the, all of this, I wouldn't have it. And yeah. With the same practice of gratitude that you mentioned, I, I'm so emotional. I've always been very emotional, but now that I'm sober, you know, just all of a sudden catching my kids playing or, you know, my little boy lately, he's into hugging me and saying, mom, you're my best friend. And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> you know, like, yep. <laughs> it's so great to just be here for it. And it's so simple, but that's what being sober has allowed me at least is to be here for those moments. And I'm really happy that you now get to experience that as well. What is your response when someone offers you a drink? I know you've had all of 2020 sober, which I'm, assu I'm assuming you haven't gone to a lot of gatherings or parties, but how comfortable do you feel addressing your sobriety in social scenarios or with friends and family? Now I feel very comfortable. I think in the first six months, it would have been a lot harder. You know, you're right. I haven't really had to turn things down. My solution now, I bring something with me. If mm -hmm. I'm going to an outdoor bonfire or something, uh, which I've gone to at a neighbor's house, like I'll just bring water or seltzer with me and not take the chance that uh, I'm going to have to go poking around for something or that someone will hand me something. Yeah, it's always best to bring your drinks. And I also... There's so many good drinks out there. I found that, you know, there's always going to be water. There's always going to be soda water for the most part. But it's nice to have a little something that's your favorite thing. And if, you know, if you can take responsibility of yourself and bring it. So I'm glad you do that trick as well. Does your wife drink, by the way? Yes, but it's really, she's so take it or leave it. And, you know, recently she had uh, wine with my mother-in-law who, who does drink wine and she it was the first time that she had had it since the baby was born so it had been or since she was pregnant so it had been more than a year for her also and she was teasing me that she had more sober time than i did and, <laughs> <laughs> and she had a glass of wine and was like you know i actually don't really like the way this is making me feel so i think i'm gonna be with you on this which was really nice and beautiful i'm okay if she drinks but it's kind of nice to have that. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's so cool that our kids get to not see wine 
all around them at home all the time. Because even, I mean, my mom is a normal drinker, but my dad has been sober for, he's going to be 12 years in June. And, you know, my mom sounds very much like your wife to where take it or leave it every, whenever someone offers it to her or at parties or whatever. But my house, you know, I there's not a lot of wine all of the time. Every time I go back home, there's, it's just, it's cool to see these sober homes and maybe sometimes, but I really think we're turning a page and that people are also starting to understand that even if they don't have a problem with it, maybe they just don't really like how it makes them feel. And I think that's pretty cool for, for our kids to be around. Yeah. I mean, you know, so much for me, I, I think I had as much of an alcohol problem as I had. I had a reality problem. So like, as long as I'm comfortable, if I'm working to be comfortable with reality and I don't need to escape it, it's not so much alcohol that I miss. It's that escape at times. And that's what I have to work on. Yeah. Acceptance. It sounds like that's another, you mentioned uh, ongoing themes for me. It's been acceptance, right? And an acceptance yeah. of, of my problem with alcohol, of, of people, the way that they are around me. Cause I feel like we were at a meeting the other day and we were talking about unexpected perks of sobriety. And, and I shared that I don't know if this one sounds like a perk, but I feel like I've, I see my role in things now. I used to just play this blame game and and now I just accept me for who I am. I accept others for who they are. And yeah, and I see my, my own flaws as well before I didn't even want to see mine. It was so much easier to see other people's and just sit on this victim role. What's something unexpected that has happened to you during this journey, Adam? Oh, man. I think just the, the fact that life is so much better and more, I experience more joy on a daily basis than I ever thought was possible. And that is unexpected. That's pretty. Take it in. Any possibilities in the future that you're excited about right now? Any new ideas have come to you? Creativity? Yeah, I, so I'm a really big live music fan and I love the band Fish and the Grateful Dead and, um, you know, they both have really active sober communities and I go to see fish any chance I get. And there, there's a sober group called the fellowship and they actually have like a little recovery meeting during set break. And I cannot wait to be present, you know, physically at a concert and be able to attend one of those and be with other sober people soaking in live music being created on the spot. That is something I'm I'm passionate about and look forward to. Uh, keep that on your bucket list. And sober concerts, oh, I miss concerts, period. Sober concerts are so much better than drunk concerts by far. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one day we'll get back to live music. I'm optimistic about it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right, Adam, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. If you could talk to day one, Adam, or Adam when you were younger, what would you say? You're worthy of receiving all the love the universe hmm. has for you. What has recovery made possible for you? Everything. There's a saying I love. Uh, addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Such a truth bomb. What is your favorite ice cream flavor, Adam? Uh, I've been waiting for you to ask this. <laughs> uh, anything Ben and Jerry's, but man, they have this oatmeal cookie uh, ice cream that I really love. And anything Ben and Jerry's is a favorite answer in the Kressler household. So if you're ever in San Diego... We can all eat some Ben and Jerry's ice cream. We go through Ben and Jerry's so much. <laughs> Perfect. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery, Adam? There are a few books I always turn to. The Four Agreements was a game changer for me. Great one, Miguel And uh, Yeah, I love that book. Um, and people that I met through recovery, be it my sponsor or other, there's a, a core group of people that I met in treatment that are so vital to me. Yeah, that support system, that community, it's so important. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about perhaps ditching the booze? There's nothing in this world that is worth more of an investment than yourself. And if you can do this, you will have a life beyond anything you can imagine. 
And before we depart, Adam, give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you find yourself drinking at an in-person AA meeting. Adam, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you are doing this with us. You're part of Recovery Elevator as well. So thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to air this with all of our listeners. Thank you, Odette. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap for our interview today. And before I say adios, I want to give you a little challenge. Take out your journal or notebook and explore this prompt. When do I feel at peace? Is it easy to stay there when I feel it? What do I normally run towards to when I find myself unable to stay at peace? Think about it. Creating a new normal when it comes to mindset takes more than just quitting drinking. I know, I know, this is just more work, but you're already here. So why not try and learn more about yourself? Lastly, friendly reminder that our YouTube video collection is growing. A couple of weeks ago, Paul and Chris posted a new video with an amazing recipe for tamarindo limeade, and I loved the video. Not only do you get a recipe out of it, but also a lot of laughs. Thank you, Paul and Chris, for always reminding me that this journey has to be fun. Head over to our YouTube and search for Recovery Elevator if you want to check it out and make some tamarindo limeade. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, peace begins with you. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. seeing of who you are not, not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken. Perception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity. This is the ego. The ego.